Well, hello, everybody. I'm Bill O'Byrne, your host for the Coastal Conundrum podcast. It's the podcast that explores the art of developing and implementing coastal policies and programs that strike a balance between coastal ecosystems, coastal economies, and coastal communities in a dynamic landscape that is getting progressively more dynamic as a result of climate change. And as always, I want to thank the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting this show. And today we've got a great show. We're going to talk about the National Coastal Resilience Fund, which funds projects to enhance community and ecosystem resilience along the nation's coastline with a focus on natural infrastructure. And this is a joint program uh, run between the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which I will hereafter call NIFWIF because it's a mouthful, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Um, And today I'll be talking to two of the principals administering the program. Erica Feller, the Director for Coastal and Marine Conservation for NIFWIF, and Dr. Laura Pettish, the Manager of the Coastal of the Communities Program in NOAA's Office for Coastal Management. Um, before we dive into the conversation, here's a word, word from the good folks that keep these shows on the air. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. So Erica and Laura, welcome and thanks for being on the Coastal Conundrum podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Erica, and and then Laura, can you give our listeners a little background on yourselves, uh, where you work, how you got there, uh, what you're doing these days? I'm the director, like you said, for Coastal and Marine Conservation at the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. I've been doing this for about four years, um, and my program includes the National Coastal Resilience Fund. We also do a lot of work with NOAA on coral reef conservation, protected resources, um, and fisheries management are all areas where we partner with NOAA. And it was a long and winding road to get here, um, including working a lot of different policy and program roles uh, in government and also working with the Nature Conservancy for a few years. And I'm Laura. Um, I have been at NOAA for 12 years, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, I lead both Um, day-to-day implementation of the National Coastal Zone Management Program, a state-federal partnership with 34 coastal states and territories, um, as well as uh, programmatic implementation of the National Coastal Resilience Fund. And uh, I'm a marine scientist by training. I've worked in coral reefs, rocky intertidal ecosystems, and um, estuaries, particularly on oyster populations. And um, basically, wanted a better sense of how to connect science and decision-making and came to DC as a AAAS science and technology policy fellow, um, got Potomac fever and have been at NOAA ever since. Great. Well, thanks for, for the background and, and some pretty interesting ways you guys got around to doing these programs. But right now, uh, and I'll start with Erica, 
Um, can you give the, our listeners a brief overview of the um, National Coastal Resilience Fund? Um, and, you know, some of the key aspects, what it does, maybe a little historical background. Sure. So the National Coastal Resilience Fund, um, which we have an RFP out on the street right now with pre-proposals due April 7th, um, this program started in 2018 um, and it was, you know, directed to NIFWF by Congress um, through NOAA. And so that was where we and NOAA kind of started working together to build this whole thing out. We started thinking about the lessons that NIFWF had learned um, in implementing the Hurricane Sandy grants and being part of that whole partnership and, you know, trying to build on a lot of lessons learned in previous resilient grant programs. And so in 2018, we worked, um, it was pretty surprising. We got an RFP on the street and within, gosh, Laura, what was it, a month? I think we had almost 200 proposals from people who had projects ready to go. And we told people, hey, bring us a design, you know, either bring us a project where you want to get a, a project designed and ready to implement, get it to that shovel ready stage. Or if you've got something in the can that's shovel ready and you want to build it, bring that to us. We were kind of looking for both of those categories. And we, you know, put together a slate of about 44 projects in 2018. And so it's been an annual offering since then. Um, and it's it's grown over the years, the way we kind of implement it. One of the things we realized going into the second year was when you think about planning and design of a project, there's really two key stages we need to think about. The first is making a go, no-go decision. And then the second is the design and engineering. So we separated those and said, if you need to do an assessment and you know a site assessment and preliminary designs to make that go, no-go decision, here's a category for you. And then people who are trying to get stuff to be implementation ready, we'll separate that. And then in 2020, um, one of the things we saw over and over and over again is we weren't getting projects from certain communities. And what we really found was that planning, um, communities kind of need to sit down and think about what they need to do. What are the risks they face? What are the, what are their needs? And, you know, put that plan together, think about what their capacities needs are, and then they can start to move projects forward. And so what we're really trying to get people to do through this is we want, we're looking for projects that can, restore natural and nature-based features that will reduce community um, exposure to coastal flooding risks and that also have a benefit for fish and wildlife. To get to projects that hit that bullseye squarely, we know we need to move people through this pipeline. And so that's how the program is really set up. It's like you can come in, you can do planning, you can move a project to that go, no-go decision, you can design, do the design and engineering and get ready to get your permits, or you can come in and you can build something. Great. Laura, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think uh, just another important note is that the National Coastal Resilience Fund um, was was put in place uh, basically building also off the work and history of the NOAA Coastal Resilience Grants Program, uh, which had been run for a few years previously to NCRF. And, um, and actually some of the investments through that program have now, uh, those projects have evolved and matured and come in through NCRF. So we see sometimes that direct pipeline um, of projects that are building off those previous NOAA investments. And, you know, like Erica said, uh, one cool thing about NCRF is that 
these projects have to have both ecosystem and community resilience benefits. So it can't be a project that just has uh, fish and wildlife habitat benefits. It has to have those benefits and also enhance the resilience of that community, whether that's protecting a critical evacuation route or a power plant or an airport um, or in some cases a a cultural heritage site. So I think it's just um, nice that these these, uh, projects really address that intersection um, and highlight the connectedness of ecosystem and community resilience. Well, that's great. They've got, a, uh, it's a multi-objective program. Um, and and Erica, uh, uh, is it right that you guys have roughly 30 to $35 million a year? And, but, but could you tell me about the dollar level of proposals that you get? Is it, is it at that level or is it higher? Sure. So the first year we had about $30 million. Um, this year, the appropriations for the program were at $34 million. Um, and, you know, part of NIFWIF's role here is to build partnerships with other funding partners. So we've also got um, to leverage NOAA's investment in this. We also have partnerships with other federal agencies and with companies um, that put money into the program as well. And it's, you know, one of the cool things about the program is we're seeing the scale of the projects change. When we started this, we were like, we want to we want to invest in projects that are going to have an impact at a meaningful scale for communities. Like there's been you know, pilot projects are critically important, but we need to move beyond the pilot stage. You know, communities are facing these risks on a regular basis and we need to kind of figure out how to do implementation at scale. And so like the first year, I think probably the biggest, I can't even remember what the biggest project we had, but it was maybe a couple million dollars. When we got to the 2020 grant slate, we had several projects at the $5 million scale. So I think as people are starting to think and plan and count on this funding opportunity year over year, we're seeing the scale of projects. We're seeing communities' ambitions and interests really start to kind of grow to where we want. We're we're, we're really excited to help them get to. Great, um, and uh, Laura, I, I I've noted that um, this in some of the literature about the pr- uh, program, um, you talk about a regional focus. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important um, thing here that that you know, we, we collectively try to take seriously is the need for um, regional diversity and geographic diversity of projects and also, you know, different types of projects, making sure there's a nice spread of kind of planning, design, um, site assessment and implementation work. Um, and I think there's been a lot of success there that, you know, we're seeing um, projects come in from, from all regions and a number of states and territories. Um, and, you know, where there haven't been as many projects submitted before, we're kind of taking a hard look at those areas and seeing what's needed to help um, those communities come in and be competitive. So I think there's been a lot of success there. And it's it's pretty cool to have a program that, you know, supports work from Alaska to Michigan to Florida and everything in between. Yeah. So uh, it, that's great. Um, also, it looks like uh, you guys have had a good deal of congressional support. So it, could I say that pretty accurately that that's bipartisan support for this program? Yes, absolutely. I think there's a lot of members that we've heard from that are, you know, seeing these issues going on in their districts and in their states, and they're hearing from their constituents about them. And, you know, we're trying to administer this program like 
recognizing that and being responsive and meeting those communities where they are. So yeah, I think, I think folks on the Hill have been pretty happy with what we've been doing. Okay. Um, Erica, uh, it seems that, uh, or it's obvious that you've got other uh, partners that are providing funds for this. Do you also require uh, recipients to, to match those funds? Yeah. So part of why NIFWF was created was to, you know, facilitate helping, you know, getting federal funds on the ground to conservation projects, but also to leverage federal investments in conservation on the ground. And so we do that in a couple ways. Um, one is by building partnerships. So currently this program has, um, you know, in addition to our partnership with NOAA, we started out like the first year Shell and TransRe joined as partners on this program, both companies making investments in the fund that go into grants. Um, and today, we, in addition to Shell and TransRe and NOAA, we have the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Defense, AT&T and Occidental Petroleum are all partners and all investing um, in the grants portion of the program. So that helps to leverage um, the money that NOAA puts in. In addition, um, we match NOAA's money overall. So we have to match the $34 million that um, NOAA's putting into this program. And we, ex we communicate to applicants that a one-to-one -one match is expected, which is consistent with you know, NIFWF's authorization and all, all this other kind of stuff. But one thing we recognize with this program is that um, you know, we don't want match to be a barrier to a good project. Match definitely makes a project more competitive. Um, and I think there's some reasons that match is helpful. Like, you know, it's, it's a really good indicator that you have a broad-based partnership, that you have local investment, that our grants are typically, you know, two, three, four years, and we invest in things that go on into the future. Match gives us some idea that that stuff's going to happen and that we're going to make a sustainable investment. But we also don't want that to stop worthy projects from going forward. So, you know, we have some flexibility built into the program to work with applicants who may be struggling with match and help them figure out how, how they can move a project forward. Well, that's really great because um, I know that there may be some areas of the country that are struggling maybe more than others. Um, and Erica, you, you had mentioned uh, briefly that there is a request for proposals for the program that's out on the street right now. Is Would you like to say anything else about that, uh, where people might want to look uh, to try to find out information? Sure. Um, there's a couple of things I want to say about it. The first is that you can find it on our website at www.nifwif.org slash coastal resilience, um, which ought to be kind of intuitive. Um, there's a ton of information on there. In addition to the request for proposals, there's a webinar that we recorded that includes all kinds of information that will be helpful to anyone looking to apply for a grant from NIFWF. Uh, there's information on how to write a budget narrative, how to put together a good proposal. The other thing that's um, important to know is that there is a footprint for the National Coastal Resilience Fund. We're looking to invest in places that are susceptible to coastal flooding risks. And so we target these grants to basically coastal watersheds and you know nearby um, coastal huckates and then adjacent low-lying areas. So if you go in there, there's also a map that you can go click on it. Um, it's under the program information tab. You can click on this map. You can type in the name of your community and find out if your community is within the footprint that we're looking to invest for NCRF. Um, 
there's, you know, there's a lot of tools and resources. It's also, I would encourage people to look at what we funded in the past and all of our past grant slates are posted. And I find a lot of those projects to be really great inspiration to see the really cool stuff that a lot of communities are doing um, as they try and wrap their heads around these risks and different solutions. Great. Um, and speaking of the cool stuff, Laura, um, I'll start with you. Uh, can you describe some of the more uh, innovative, interesting, or successful projects, some of the cool stuff that you guys have, have funded so far? And, and Erica, please jump in afterwards. Sure. Thanks, Bill. Um, innovation is a, a really important part of NCRF. And um, just as an example of innovative projects, there's some really interesting and important work coming out of the coral restoration field. So um, NCRF has funded projects in Hawaii and Florida, for example, um, and some of those build off, you know, smaller scale uh, experimental research and, and management techniques um, and planning efforts and now are leading to larger scale, um, you know, in the water restoration. Um, I think one thing that's particularly innovative about these projects is that they're designed themselves to be resilient to future change. So, for example, they are um, selecting corals that are temperature and disease resistant uh, or resilient to then outplant onto the reef um, with the thought being that if you select the, the corals that are um, you know, more likely to live, then the restoration effort is more likely to be successful and will provide those protective benefits um, to the community as well as the important habitat benefits for the ecosystem. So um, I think you know the coral community is doing some really um, important and innovative work, partly because they have to, because that's sort of the state of affairs for coral reef ecosystems at this point. And there's a lot of emphasis on um, restoration as a result of the coral declines that are happening um, around the world. So that's just one example. I don't know, Erica, if you have another one to share. Yeah, I mean, one one thing I would just throw out there is this program is at this point just entering its fourth year. So um, we haven't had a ton of construction projects close yet. So people are still doing the work. But I will say on the score of what I see success as success is, um, as I was talking about before, this pipeline approach to projects. You know, we want to see, we want to meet communities where they are, help them figure out what their needs are, how to design a project to actually address those needs, and then help them implement it. And we are seeing a number of projects um, where that's happening. Um, you, you know, we've had, we have communities like Laura talked about places where NOAA has invested previously that are moving forward under the National Coastal Resilience Fund. I would point to the community of Brookhaven on Long Island, which was a community that was impacted by Hurricane Sandy. Um, they used funds um, made available by Congress under Hurricane Sandy to start thinking about, you know, their coastal flooding risks. We funded them under the National Coastal Resilience Fund to do um, site assessment and preliminary design. And now they're moving forward into designing and engineering a resilience project for their community. And to me, I just think that's really exciting is that idea of being able to work with a community as they take these steps going forward. And another one like that is, you know, work that's going on in the city of Jacksonville. Um, we've got a grantee down there, Groundwork Jacksonville, that has a really successful um, 
partnership with the city of Jacksonville, works with a lot of communities. They did a project to design a resilient strategy for um, McCoy's Creek running in through the city of Jacksonville. And in 2020, the city of Jacksonville actually came back and applied for funds to implement the project that their partner helped them to design. And that one I just I think is really interesting because there you have a public-private partnership where you have one partner kind of doing the one phase they're well suited to, and then the 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 city itself, which I think is probably got more capacity to actually implement coming in for the next phase. And we're seeing more and more of those projects over time, which I I think is um, really exciting and the one of the kinds of success I was hoping for. So, Erica. Uh- as far as eligible applicants, so uh, as I understand it, there's uh, state all the way down to local governments, um, as well as private uh, 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 private sector uh, recipients and NGOs. Is are there others that are uh, also eligible for that for those programs? Yeah, that's that's correct. State and local government um, are definitely eligible. Universities, nonprofits. Um, for-profit companies like, you know, engineering firms and, and, and the like have, have all been successful applicants. Uh, really, the only entities that are not eligible are federal agencies um, and, you know, um, foreign entities are, are not eligible under the NCRF. But, you know, the focus of the program is really on U.S. coastal communities. And when you say U.S., that also, I mean, that does include the territories, correct? It does include the territories. And thank you, Bill, for reminding me of one of the other um, successes is that we have now had a project in each of the U.S. We have now funded a project in each of the U.S. territories. Um, So Laura was talking about wanting really good regional distribution. We're really excited that we have also had projects um, go forward in the Marianas Islands, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. You talked a little bit about the, how the program had evolved from just sort of planning and design to build. Um, are there other changes um, that the program is, has uh, gone through over time? One of the innovations we added this year, the overall structure of the program for 2021 matches up pretty well with 2020. So there are the four categories in the pipeline that you can apply under. One of the things we added this year um, that I think is going to be really, really helpful is we're really interested throughout the program. Laura mentioned at one point um, the importance of stakeholder involvement. Like from the very beginning, we have included stakeholder engagement at every stage um, in the pipeline as an important component. You know, we don't necessarily want to fund a project that is only stakeholder engagement, but we sure want to see that as part of the projects that go forward. But one of the things we're asking people to tell us a little bit more about now is like, how are they going to engage people? So we can, you know, we understand a lot about where the projects are happening, what's going, you know, what sort of the demographics of the community are where they're happening. But what we really want to understand more of from our grantees is how they're working with different communities um, and really getting that engagement, figuring out what people's needs are and, you know, helping to move forward on that basis. So this year we're asking for a little bit more information on that. Um, the other thing that's new this year is, so for our res- for our restoration projects, those are called restoration and monitoring projects, because we do include um, funding for monitoring, and we have kind of little monitoring um, templates for different habitat types that we fund. 
Um, so if you apply for like a dune restoration project, there's a monitoring template and here's a few things that we want. And the idea there is to allow us to be able to evaluate the impact of those projects on um, exposure uh, at some point in the future, which is really important to us because you asked about success. Part of success is that you're actually mitigating the exposure to flood risks. <clears throat> and this year we added um, a new monitoring template for coral reef projects. Um, so we're also going to be able to monitor those projects that are in water, <clears throat> excuse me, not just the ones that are on the coast. Great. And um, uh, Erica, do you have any of the projects that have tried to to start to think about how to monitor the actual flood reduction effects or impacts uh, if there were to be uh, a storm or, or whatever that came through that area? Has, that, has, has anybody suggested that? So it's a component of a lot of projects. Um, I'm struggling to think of a specific example right now. It from part of what NIFWF and NOAA are working on together is we wanna understand what that impact on flood risk exposure is. And so that's the reason for the monitoring component of the restoration and monitoring. One of the, one of the bits of feedback we got from evaluating previous grant programs is, you know, we can, evaluators said, hey, we can look at these impacts. We need to get access to data. And, you know, making sure that data is collected in a consistent manner and that it's, you know, available um, at, you know, some point five, six years down the road is really important to be able to get a picture of that. And so we built that into the National Coastal Resilience Fund from the very beginning. Um, here's the data we think we're going to need. Um, we include that in the project budgets. You know, we've kind of designed a monitoring approach that most grantees can, can definitely participate in or identify a partner to do that. And so at the other end of this, what we want to be able to look at is that impact on exposure, being able to kind of look at a particular intervention model, you know, under a given set of storm conditions, what might it do in terms of reducing flood risk and then be able to see how that benefits the community. But that's work that's still underway. It's something we're still trying to figure out. Great. Appreciate that. Um, Laura, uh, this is a, a, a good partnership between NOAA and NIFWF. Um, how does the partnership work? Um, can you just talk a little bit about the different roles that you guys have? Yeah, sure. Um, so NOAA, I mean, the nuts and bolts is that this is a cooperative agreement between um, NOAA and NIFWF or a series of cooperative agreements between NOAA and NIFWF to execute the program. In terms of the actual though, like how the partnership works, uh, we work very, very closely together, <laughs> very closely together. Um, so the NOAA staff and the NIFWF staff are in daily communication um, and, and work regularly together and sort of strategic brainstorming around the, the program and its execution and, and vision. Um, I think uh, I'll, I'll share a little bit about you know, where I see NOAA bringing expertise to the table, and we'll then turn it over to Erica to chime in on the NIFWF side. Um, but I, I think it makes sense that these are the, the two sort of primary entities um, who were given responsibility of administering the program. Um, NOAA brings deep technical expertise, a very deep bench um, around resilience in terms of the science around climate and coastal impacts, in terms of connecting decision-making and science um, around resilience, we have efforts like the Digital Coast platform that help to serve up um, coastal tools and information and data and, and training for folks on the ground. Um, we have 
uh, extensive engagement with communities across the nation around community resilience. We have people um, in regions who are providing that technical assistance, and we have responsibilities um, in terms of stewardship of, of coastal and ocean resources. So I think, you know, again, NOAA brings that um, both community and ecosystem resilience knowledge, uh, as well as, as, you know, grants administration and program management knowledge uh, to the table for NCRF. Um, Erica, do you want to share any thoughts on the on the NIFWF side? Sure. Yeah, I mean, from NIFWF standpoint, I mean, all of there is so much about partnering with NOAA that we value. Um, and I think what we're adding to the mix here is, you know, similar, we have a deep bench and a long history in conservation grant making in the areas where this program touches down. And so, you know, we, we work closely with NOAA, you know, also with kind of their regional leads in OCM, as well as in the National Marine Fisheries Service to draw on their expertise about what gets what ought to get funded. But we also have partnerships with the Fish and Wildlife Service and EPA and lots of other entities out there, as well as relationships with a lot of these grantees. And so, you know, we're what we're kind of bringing to the table is also a lot of uh, knowledge and experience in managing restoration grants um, and figuring out like how to invest and, you know, for impact moving forward so that we can, you know, try and marshal all of our efforts to having the greatest impact on the landscape going forward. Great. And um, Erica, earlier you had talked about uh, giving us a little bit of idea of what some of the other um, non-NOAA partners are bringing to the table, which is is some funding. Um, and could I was just curious about the uh, your partnership with DoD. Who are you working for or with at, at DoD, and and how is that partnership going? So Congress amended DoD's REPI authority, um, I think last year, to also allow REPI investments to address. Um, coastal resilience and or resilience and coastal flooding risks and stuff like that. And we've actually funded a few projects around bases um, even before we started partnering with DOD because, you know, military bases are communities in and of themselves. And DOD has a lot of facilities that are on the coast and are really important for a lot of reasons. And they're facing the same risks that other coastal communities are. So, you know, we've had a couple of investments, I think around, um, Oh, gosh, uh, Naval Weapons Station Earl in New Jersey and uh, uh, as well as in Georgia. And so we're partnering with DOD, frankly, to, you know, do more of that and hopefully be able to scale that up. So, you know, DOD is putting funding into the partnership that'll enable us to work more with um, particularly with DOD installations um, around the coast and under REPI. You know, this is where DOD is trying to work, um, where the bases are also trying to work with the surrounding community, do stuff on base as well as off base that's going to address the needs um, that they have in those areas. So, you know, it's a bit of a new thing to have them be part of the partnership, but they definitely have some really good ideas about what they know that they need. And they've got some, you know, really motivated and knowledgeable folks on the ground. So we're expecting to see some really interesting projects, um, particularly around DOD facilities. Well, well, cool. Erica, uh, you've talked a little bit about kind of uh, monitoring and, and, and determining the success of specific projects. How are you... Uh, 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 identifying and measuring and communicating uh, the success of the program overall. I know that when you uh, have congressional um, funding, uh, those congressional folks are always looking for, so what am I getting for my buck? 
Uh, so could you talk a little bit about that? How you're, how, you know, how you're defining success and, and measuring? Sure. I mean, in the long term, we are defining success as have we reduced exposure of communities to coastal flooding risks? And have we improved habitat for fish and wildlife species? It's going to take a while to see those kinds of benefits um, come out of our investments. But we're building, you know, building the stages right now to be able to do that on into the future. And that's a big part of what we're working on with NOAA. I think to date, what we're really looking at in terms of like, are we heading in the right direction? Um, are we seeing projects move forward through the pipeline? Um, where have we seen grantees come back, you know, stay, you know, for one stage, then the next stage, then the next stage. Um, we're definitely starting to see that, which demonstrates the, I think the, that we're on the right track in terms of the approach for the program. I think seeing the geographic spread of the projects, um, we want this to be something that, um, gets more communities thinking about how nature-based features can contribute to how they're thinking about resilience for their communities. And we're definitely seeing um, more engagement from more communities across the U.S. And I think definitely adding the capacity building and planning phase is going to, you know, help do that um, even more. I think we're also seeing, you know, seeing the success of a single project some of these projects may be big, but still within the larger context, they're small. And so, you know, what we probably also want to look, look at is, you know, where are there places where there are multiple interventions and how are those kind of working together to reduce the risk for the community? We can definitely look at the impact of a single project. That is something we're absolutely working on. But I think also overall, what we really want to understand is how are all these projects and all these investments working together um, in order to contribute to, you know, what the community's goals are, that the community is, you know, safer, has reduced flooding, reduced residence time of flooding, whatever it is that they're looking to have happen. Um, the other thing that we're hoping for, and I think we're starting to see this, one of the ways we set up the community capacity building and planning projects is, you know, the other three phases are really about a project in a place, but community capacity building and planning is much more about the community. And what we said is, look, you, you can go do a planning process and come up with a list of nature-based features that you want to move forward and figure out if you should implement them. That's great. That's absolutely something that would make us very happy as an outcome of that grant. But what would make us really extra happy and very excited is if you take this planning and capacity building opportunity and maybe think a little bit more broadly about what's going on in your community. Like maybe, maybe you want to come back to the National Coastal Resilience Fund. Maybe you want to go work with FEMA. Maybe you want to go work with the Economic Development Administration. Maybe you want to go work for work with some state source of funding that can address these kinds of needs. Coming up, we have seen some projects come forward with really multifaceted approaches to thinking about resilience. They're applying for grants where they're looking at nature-based features, but they're also saying, gosh, you know, these things are going to contribute to our future economic development. Um, we've got other habitat restoration ideas. You know, they've got, they're sort of embedding resilience into a larger community planning initiative. And so that plan is actually going to help them be much more strategic and think about a lot more partnerships than just coming back to us. 
And that, you know, the more projects we see like that, I think that's going to be a real sign of success is that's really going to open up the capacity of these communities to get at some of these some of these challenges that they want to solve. That's really good. That's a great point to make. Um, and Laura, did you have anything to add to that from your perspective as far as uh, success or communicating success? Yeah, I agree with everything um, Erica said, and it's kind of amazing to see um, success in only a few years of the program. Um, so it was just a testament to how great these projects are um, and how much of a demand there is on the ground. I think uh, just a few, you know, NOAA connected examples. Uh, for example, the city of Virginia Beach got an NCRF grant this year um, that builds off some work they did under a NOAA Coastal Resilience Grant to support planning and prioritization of resilience projects. And that planning investment is now um, leading to specific projects like this one where they're doing some um, interesting marsh terrace design and, and permitting work um, that's innovative and will have ecosystem and community resilience benefits. Uh, there's also a, a project, a capacity building project through the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium that's going to support planning in 44 Alaskan communities. So sometimes we see small scale capacity building projects that are focused on one community. That tends to be more of the case, but this is going to address 44 Alaskan communities. Um, and it help, it it leverages um, some, some previous work that a NOAA Digital Coast fellow did working with Alaska on developing um, new techniques to analyze and communicate flood risk. So anyway, it's just nice to see these threads coming together. And, and like Eric has been saying throughout this podcast, uh, meeting communities where they are with their resilience needs through this program. Well, I, I know that uh, it definitely takes a while for uh, some of these programs to, to be able to demonstrate success. I was involved in some non-point source programs that probably took 20 or so years to demonstrate success. But uh, uh, one thing that, uh, and, and I, you said something that made me want to come back uh, to this, Laura, um, talking about demand. And I was, I think um, uh, earlier I was, I was looking or, or talking about you guys put out roughly 30 to $35 million a year. What, what do you get from the demand side? What are, uh, what do you get in dollar value of, of proposals that are submitted? I'm, I'm assuming it's a bit more than the 35 million. Um, I don't have the stats handy. Maybe Erica does, but a lot more. <laughs> Bottom line is a, a lot more demand, um, a lot more requests than the program is currently able to support. Uh, and, you know, that makes it competitive, which means that the projects that are selected are really cream of the crop. Um, and I know NIFWF, you know, tries to give feedback to applicants who aren't successful the first time in hopes that they can strengthen the proposal and, and try to come again the next year. So, um, but, you know, as as we've said, too, the, the program has grown in investment and um, that has helped to some degree meet the demand. But also, you know, we see the demand increase every year. Yeah, if I can pile on that, Bill, um, in 2020, we got requests for six times as much funding as we had available. Um, we ended up funding 44 really great projects. Um, I mean, things that we're really excited about. And I think this is definitely a mark of success is that there is so much demand out there. We're seeing these numbers continue to increase over time. But the program is really competitive. Um, and man, it is, it is hard to decide. There are a lot of really great projects that do not get funded. 
Um, and so, you know, we, we provide feedback to people who are unsuccessful to help them strengthen their applications and encourage them to come back the following year. And, you know, it's kind of the advantage of having a program that we can offer annually is that it kind of provides some, you know, it shores people up. It gives them some confidence that there's some place that they can go back to for future funding. So they can think big and know that there's going to be some place where they can go to get, to get their projects funded in the future. Great. Yeah, and, and I, I think that really is a, a sign of, of success when you've got <laughs> six times the uh, demand. That's that's pretty impressive. Um, so uh, if I could ask you, Erica, to look into your crystal ball and tell me um, what stocks I should short. No, 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 no. Uh, what uh, If you could look in your crystal ball and tell me uh, what might the future hold for the Cultural Resilience Fund? Um, Anything that uh, we can kind of look out over the horizon and see coming? I'm glad you're not asking me for stock advice. That would not be good. Um, you know, I hope that we have a program that continue, can continue to build and serve communities and, you know, move forward nature-based features at, at scale. I think the thing I really you know, that I kind of hope for on into the future is that we can continue to explore how this program can connect to leverage, enhance um, communities ability to access and work with other programs as well. Like if we fund a project that can serve as sort of a focus in a particular community and get the attention of other funders who say, oh, okay, we get what you're doing. We want to invest more. You know, that that to me is success. It's not just what we're able to do under this program, but I think it's what we're able to do under this program and connections with others who are working in this space to really like um, increase interest and attention and successful implementation of nature-based features as, as part of how communities are dealing with these risks. Because I think it's an important part of it. There's a lot of benefits um, besides just the exposure and habitat benefits. So that's... That's where I hope we can go into the future. Great. And Erica, would that be uh, like programs such as like, well, I think the Army Corps has the design with nature programs, things like those types of programs? Sure. Absolutely. And Laura, um, can I uh, get you to look into your crystal ball? Anything from your, from Noah's perspective? I mean, the future is so bright. I got to wear shades. Um, but seriously, I, I think it's, it's um, nice to have a program that's been so consistently successful in its first few years that seems to grow um, in terms of demand and in terms of, of partnership and collaboration. And that really helps diversify the, the types of projects and increase the, the number of communities that are, are served through this effort. Well, great. Well, uh, so this has been really, really helpful. And, and I, again, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that there is an RFP out on the streets. Um, but I'll turn to Laura first and then Erica. Uh, Laura, um, uh, any last thoughts um, that you have that you'd like to talk about the program? Yeah, thanks for asking, Bill, and, and again for having us today. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we spent a, a decent amount of the time today talking about what is success. And I think um, through this program, it's just, it's nice to be able to envision a future where coastal communities across the United States are resilient to future change and, and that that is done in a way that is thoughtful 
um, that builds on best available science, that harnesses nature and doesn't just take a approach of hardening everywhere. So that in addition to having these uh, fish and wildlife benefits and um, coastal protection that, you know, we're able to enhance recreation and tourism and aesthetics and all other things that people love about their coasts and connect with um, in coastal areas. And I, I think this this past hard year has been a reminder of how much people value nature being outdoors. Um, and so I think with NCRF, having the ability to uh, protect communities while also enhancing our coastal environment, uh, it's really just a win-win. So that's my parting thought. Great. And Erica, how about you? I want to associate myself with everything that Laura just said. Um, and, you know, the only thing I think I would add that I want to leave people with is we, when I say over and over that we want to meet communities where we are, um, I, I think we all mean that sincerely across the NIFWITH and NOAA partnership. And we want to make sure that this community or that this program is available and accessible by communities across the U.S. And there are no bad questions. Um, there are ne no necessarily preferences about who we fund. We, we want to work with people. And so I would just encourage folks, you know, if you've got a project idea, if you're interested in this program, but you're not sure like that you can meet the match requirement, or you're not sure that, you know, you have what we're looking for in terms of a project, call us. We're, you know, we've, we've got a team here who can, who know a lot about this and can work with people. And we really want to see people, you know, get into this, figure it out and develop solid projects. That's why we're here. So um, don't hesitate to reach out. And one more time, Erica, where can they go to get information? You can go to www.nifwif.org slash coastal resilience. There is more information there than you could possibly imagine about the National Coastal Resilience Fund. But more importantly is there are three names across the bottom of it. Um, there's my name, Erica Feller, uh, Katie Goldsmith, who manages the National Coastal Resilience Fund, um, and Ariel Mayan, um, who is the coordinator for our team. And any one of us um, are happy to answer questions. We also have regional leads um, who are probably closer to where people are that you can also reach out to and say, hey, I've got a project idea. What do you think? And Laura, if uh, our listeners are interested in finding out a little bit more about uh, the Office for Coastal Management, uh, where could they go to get that? Go to coast.noaa.gov. Um, also referencing Digital Coast, which I mentioned earlier, you can go to coast.noaa.gov slash digital coast. And there's lots of great um, information, tools, and resources there. Well, great. Uh, again, my thanks to um, Erica Feller and Dr. Laura Pettish uh, for being on the show. Um, and thanks, everybody. And we'll be talking to you soon. <laughs>